Hi, I'm Mark Priestley. After a life spent in the elite environment of the Formula One pit lane learning how to win, this podcast aims to bring that elusive, high-performance culture into your daily lives. In this week's episode, we're looking at the need to combine brilliant technology with human experience, and we're looking at the F1 test that happened in Barcelona and trying to learn a little bit more by looking around the edges than the lap time might have us believe is going on. Welcome to a new episode of Pit Lane Life Lessons. Talk about how Formula One teams are so successful. Tiny things, but you only find those tiny things when you look for them. Of course, there's only one winner in every Grand Prix, so for everybody else, you haven't won, so it could be deemed that's, that's a failure. Hey everybody, what's up? Thank you so much to everybody for joining once again for another brand new episode of the Pit Lane Life Lessons podcast. Wherever it is you're listening in from, I appreciate you. Uh, I really appreciate many of you who've let me know where it is you're listening or how you're listening or what it might be meaning to you or for you on a daily basis. Perhaps for some of you it is helping you to instigate change in your own life, helping you to move forward perhaps in a different way or to achieve things that otherwise you might have been stuck somewhere with. Now, it's you that's making all these changes. This is you that's taking the first step into whatever challenge you're facing. But if the podcast just somehow helps you get over that line, if it makes you think differently about a particular problem or challenge in your life, well, then that is exactly the reason that I do it. And I appreciate any of you who have taken the time over the last week to let me know that that's the case. Thank you so much. Uh, We are back again this week with a lot to talk about because... This was the first week that we all got to see collectively the brand new 2022 Formula One cars on track together at the same time in pre-season testing for this huge season of 2022, something that's brand new in so many different areas and a moment in time that we've been looking forward to for so long. And I'm going to talk about what that's like from the inside, perhaps what we can read into pre-season testing, but also what it's like on the other side. We're looking at it now as fans and as media, but what's it like on the inside when you first go to a pre-season test with your brand new car? We're going to cover lots of that today too. We're also going to talk about what it's like to have other people judge your car for the very first time. How is it when you're trying to hide things from other people and they are desperately trying to find those out? So that whole side of a perspective of, of being inside a Formula One team at this time of year, we'll get into much of that. And of course, if we relate that back to our daily lives, what perhaps we can learn from it, what we can learn to do and learn not to do. Um, but I want to start by going back a week. So roughly this time last week, I mentioned it briefly in last week's podcast, the UK was hit with, well, for the UK, some pretty big storms, uh, very, very powerful winds, which was pretty scary at times. Now we are talking about UK standards. So a lot of people will scoff at a UK storm and say, that's nothing. That's just a light breeze. (laughs) And I get that. But for those of us living here, uh, it was it was pretty scary. I live in a, a house that was surrounded by very tall trees. Um, and uh, look, for a couple of days, we lost power. We lost all ele- electricity. We lost the phone signals uh, as a mast had gone down. So for a couple of days, we were completely cut off from all technology, um, uh, but certainly from, from the rest of the world. We couldn't make phone calls. We couldn't access the internet, clearly. We couldn't turn the lights on, we couldn't cook using an electric cooker, couldn't heat the house using electric heating. So all of those amenities that we rely on and probably take for granted had gone, albeit just for two days. And after the weekend, I heard my daughter talking to one of her friends who asked her, you know, how was the weekend for you? How was the storm? And her response was, yeah, it was pretty bad. You know, we uh, we lost Wi-Fi for two days. And I had to step in and say, whoa, 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 hang on a minute. We lost power for two days. We lost electricity. That's what we lost. She wasn't really worried about the fact we lost lighting or we couldn't cook or heat the house. She was worried about the fact she lost Wi-Fi and therefore her access to the Internet. Um, And look, perhaps that's no major surprise. You know, kids, I'm talking about 11 year old children here. uh, Of course, they are growing up in a world which is heavily reliant on access to the internet. And that was really where I wrote my note, uh, the first note I want to refer to in my diary from last week, because the note off the back of all this simply says, 
are we too heavily reliant on technology? Now, that's a fairly open-ended question, and I want to apply it to Formula One and to the wider world, if you like, because, look, technology is both brilliant and destructive, depending on how it's used and into which hands it falls. Of course, we all know that. Even things like social media, which gets an incredibly bad name out there, it gets a really bad rap, quite rightly so in many cases, but it also has a hugely positive effect. I love social media. You know, I have grown a community in my social channels, all centred around Formula One and cars, which I am massively grateful for, which I really enjoy engaging with. I get very little hatred on there. It tends to be, it's a lovely group of people who tend to just talk openly about a shared passion that we all have, which is cars and Formula One. So look, I'm a huge supporter of technology in almost all senses, as long as it's used correctly and for good. I'm a massive gadget freak. You won't find many people who are more supportive of technology and the advancement of technology. The question that I wrote in the diary there is, have we become or are we becoming too heavily reliant upon it? And look, I want to refer this back to Formula One because these are thoughts that I've had for quite a long time. Even when I was inside the McLaren Formula One team, we used technology, of course, at the very cutting edge in terms of the hardware that we created the car from, uh, in terms of the software that actually operated many of the systems on the car. Incredible technology that was advancing at such a pace week by week. And we were at the very forefront of that. And it was partly why I loved the job so much. But there were a couple of incidences where I felt like we were heading in a direction where human intervention or human interaction with that technology was becoming more and more limited. When it came to things like decision making, critical decision making, I felt like humans were starting to take more and more of a back seat. And it was the technology that was actually driving the decisions. Now, I know that that technology is programmed and coded by humans but we've got to an age now where the technology is also intelligent enough to make pretty advanced decision making calculations in incredibly quick time frames which are far quicker and far more efficient in many cases than humans are able to do my point and the point that i certainly raised even back in the day at the team was that when you're using that technology for example, to help make strategic decisions during a Grand Prix, you have to temper the technology with human interaction. You have to combine that technological brilliance with human expertise and human experience, the life experience that a particular human might have built up over many, many years. Experiences that a computer simply can't replicate in the same way. And look, I can give an example of things like in-race strategy. Sometimes the computers will churn out a strategy decision, like when to make a pit stop or when to switch over to a different type of tyre, for example. And yet a human will look at it with the experience of many years of sitting on the pit wall, looking at Grand Prix races, understanding what your competitors might be doing, understanding the people that are within your competitors' teams and having an understanding of what their biases are, what kind of person is making the decisions on the other side of the, the pit wall, on the other end of the pit wall at one of your competitors. Have one of the humans in our team perhaps worked at one of our competitors' teams in the past and therefore know the strategy team at that organisation inside out? Have they worked with them on a daily basis for years? Have they even trained them, perhaps? And so do they have a much better understanding of the type of decision that might be made by a certain person at another team than the computer systems can possibly have? And those were the kind of examples that I used to think, look, we need to just be a little bit careful here about being too reliant on the fact that Technology is driving our strategy to such an, uh, you know, such an advanced and great level. There were a couple of occasions when I remember sending, we had a, a radar truck, which was a hugely kitted out, very extravagant, very expensive, massively technologically advanced 
radar truck that we would send out into the hills. And every team had this, by the way. But we'd send it out up into the hills where we'd be monitoring the radar systems, um, the weather systems using radar and satellite tech. And um, they would be very accurate systems. And we used that, of course, to get an early read on weather fronts that might be approaching the circuit. And if we had 30 seconds or a minute of advanced warning that a weather system had changed direction and was now predicted to hit the circuit at a certain time, of course, we could make our strategy decisions based on that. Then perhaps another team that didn't have such advanced information, well, perhaps they would get it wrong and we would get it right. That's, of course, the theory behind it. There were a number of occasions when the radar truck or the satellite imagery that we were receiving on the pit wall would say that, look, it's going to rain in 30 seconds time. We're going to get a short, sharp burst of rain and it might continue for three minutes, something like that. And I'd be sitting in the garage, looking out the door of the garage, looking up at the sky. And clearly I could see this dark cloud, the weather front, moving by the circuit in a direction that seemed to the naked eye like it was going to miss. And quite often we would be so heavily reliant on the technology, so invested in this technology that we had put a huge amount of time and energy and money, by the way, into creating and developing that we'd sometimes forget to just look up. Sometimes we'd forget to just look out of the window or look up at the sky. And that was an example of how the technology can be brilliant, but it has to be. It has to be used in conjunction with the human brain, with the human characteristics that we all display and all of the factors that might have gone into those human characteristics over many, many years of being in those type of situations before and having learnt from them. Whereas the computer systems, well, they may not have been in similar situations and the similar sort of time frame under similar kind of pressure in a similar set of circumstances. So weather radars, strategy systems, this brilliant technology, and it is brilliant, don't get me wrong, it's absolutely unbelievable what we've managed to create, particularly in the world of Formula One, where we are always advancing this stuff at an incredible pace. It's amazing and should not be held back, in my opinion, should only be encouraged because the rate at which we can develop it in Formula One is so far advanced of most other industries that actually we, we can be pioneers of many of these systems. But as a symptom of Formula One, but also the wider world. And to bring this back to what I realised about my daughter and the way she described the outage last weekend as being purely around Wi-Fi and not actually about many of the other amenities that we need electricity for. We need to combine whatever brilliant technology we have at our disposal with the basic human functions that we've all evolved over many thousands of years. Because if we don't, quite frankly, we will start to evolve out of those things. We'll start to evolve away from some of those basic human functions. Now, as part of this weekend where our power went out and we were almost forced to uh, to have conversation with each other, we sat in, in the house one evening, just sitting there by candlelight with no devices, with no technology at our disposal, and we, you know, started to have a conversation and I sparked up a conversation just quite flippantly, really. But the conversation topic was, look, what do we think the next stage of human evolution might be? And I chucked in this throwaway comment about well, what will happen as a human race if we become so reliant on some of the technologically advanced systems which are here already and coming in the future? You know, if we are all immersed in the metaverse in a few years time and constantly wearing some sort of glasses or goggles or never very far from a screen, because that is what our whole life has evolved to operate within. And that may not be so far from the truth as a lot of people would like to see it. You know, Could we see a situation where humans evolve to perhaps no longer have the need for long term sight? for example. And I threw this out there and my children sort of laughed and scoffed at it and we kind of debated it a little bit. 
And everyone said, no, that's ridiculous. But and it may be ridiculous because who knows what where life's going. But if technology going at the rate that it's going is so we are so heavily reliant upon it to the way that we are now and the way that a lot of the big tech companies would love to see it go. Are we actually going to lose the need for some of our basic human functions? Are we going to ever need to see beyond the short distances of a set of glasses or a screen that might be in front of us? You know, we presumably, if you believe some people, wouldn't ever need to leave the house to go and meet anybody. We wouldn't need to go to an office anymore. We wouldn't need to go anywhere because everything would be accessible to us through our set of goggles or glasses or through the screen that we're staring at out in the metaverse. We can travel the globe from our sofas in the metaverse. We can put ourselves into situations and with people and in places that otherwise we would never be able to get to. We can walk around, we can look around, we can interact with people in the metaverse. Now, it sounds like an incredible set of experiences on many levels, and I'm really looking forward to seeing how this develops. But we surely can't just have that. We can't throw ourselves so far into that that we lose everything else. And is that wildly different from the conversation that we've just had moments ago where we become too heavily reliant on technology and therefore lose some of the basic human functionality that makes us brilliant as a human race, but also adds that little bit of extra value that experience and that human characteristics can bring to any conversation or any decision making process. Now, of course, my kids hate the idea of this right now, but I have suggested off the back of last weekend that every now and again, whether it's once a week or once every couple of weeks, we actually switch all of the devices off. We switch all the technology off for an evening or for an afternoon and we sit and we have conversations like that. I and mean, we already do all those things around dinner times. We have no devices at the dinner table. We have no technology at our disposal for that. And I know lots of people do. That's not anything groundbreaking or rocket science like. But this whole idea of being isolated from technology for a short period of time started conversations like the one about human evolution and the future of, of evolution and other conversation topics that, of course, will always crop up when you have nothing to distract you from those conversational interactions with people. I think that can be a hugely valuable thing, a really powerful thing, not only because of what conversations might emerge and what thought processes that they might instigate, but how it can bring humans back together again as opposed to becoming more and more disconnected when we only interact through technology. When we're all sitting there staring at a screen and watching television together, that can be really enjoyable. That can be great fun. It can be a really nice way to relax. We do it all the time. I love it. But you're not interacting with the other humans that you're sat on the sofa next to. There's very little in the way of meaningful connection with those people during that period of time. And if that is the bulk of the period of time when you are home after school or after work, that means that for the majority of your time together, let's say on a weekday basis outside of the weekend, well, you're not probably not having much in the way of meaningful interaction with the people inside your closest circle. So should we be almost forcing that into our world on a more regular basis every now and again for fear of losing the ability to be able to do it. If families and groups of people are drifting apart further and further, and they are, that is simply a fact backed up by a huge amount of science and data. The world is drifting apart from each other and we're seeing the effects of that in so many different ways. And it is undoubtable that technology is playing a massive part in that process. So look, I am definitely not trying to get rid of technology. I'm a massive supporter of technology. I, you know, bring it on. I want to see what happens, where, where this will all go. I want to see what good we can do with the technology. And look, these technologies don't all have to be for bringing about world peace. I mean, if we can use technology for that, fantastic. But there's nothing wrong with using some of these technologies to entertain us or to take away some of the jobs that we don't necessarily enjoy doing 
because what that can do is free up capacity and time for us to do other things that might be more meaningful to us. That's massively valuable. That can all be great stuff. I want to encourage that. I want to see more of it. What I think is slightly dangerous, and to refer this back to Formula One, we have made poor decisions. Even, I mean, it happens every year. Teams make poor decisions because the computer told us to do it. I'm pretty sure every team will have done it. I've seen it happen in my time around weather, around strategy. Teams are now using AI to design their cars in some respects. Many of the decisions around which direction we should be developing cars are done or taken using AI. Immediately eradicating many of the ideas, saying, suggesting that they they will not be an efficient use of budget and time and energy and resource and therefore directing the team down an avenue that the AI thinks is the most advantageous way to put their resources towards. And now, in in most cases, it absolutely works. That's why we use it. It's incredible, brilliant technology. But it has to be, at some point, overseen by a human, double-checked by a human, combined with a human looking at the problem with their value of their experience, in tow and saying, well, listen, I understand why the computer has said this, but factor in this, because I've been here before. I know that this is a possibility that could happen if we go in this direction. And I think the world is littered with problems like that, where we have become so reliant on technology, we are losing the ability to impart our value that the human can bring to many situations. And that is from communication, that is from uh, human interaction, meaningful connection with another set of human beings. I mean, just think on a very similar basis, think how many conversations are misinterpreted because they're done over text or via WhatsApp. How many times do we misjudge what somebody actually meant because all it came through was in a set of words or a couple of emojis? Whereas actually a conversation, a face-to-face conversation, possibly would have had a very different result. That's technology taking over a process that humans actually are very, very good at and have grown to become very good at. But as the technology takes over many of these things, we are starting to get worse and worse at it. And I think the same is going to happen or is happening in many cases in the world of Formula One, in that... Computers are designing cars. Computers are making strategy decisions. Computers are predicting the weather. And humans don't even bother to look out of the window anymore to see what the weather is like right now. Because all we do is we pick up our phone and see what the app says. Now, apps can be brilliant, but they can also be wildly wrong. And look, it may not matter. The worst that you, the worst decision you make based on that could be that you decide to put a coat on when you go out for a walk or not and you might get that wrong but in some other scenarios the consequences of relying too much on technology can be far greater and that little moment that little wake-up call when my daughter was solely focused on being upset about the loss of wi-fi rather than the loss of lighting heating and the ability to cook food basic human needs (laughs) It was a little moment for me to start thinking a little bit more deeply about how our younger generations particularly are going to grow up into a world where technology could actually overtake many of the things that humans have become good at for so many years. And will we be better off as that happens or will we be worse? I would love you to tell me. I'd love to know what you think of that, of course, because it isn't clear cut. As I say, technology could have a massively powerful and brilliant effect on many areas of our life and is doing so. But should it be tempered with the constant double checking or the constant checking in of a human presence just to make sure we're still heading in the right direction? Now, the other one, and perhaps the bulk of this podcast, the thing I really want to talk about, I mentioned it at the beginning, was because, of course, it's the week where we saw Formula One cars in 2022 collectively for the very first time. Now, I'll tell you what I wrote as my note around this. Uh, I wrote the note on, where are we? Uh, On Tuesday evening. 
because it was Wednesday, wasn't it, when we saw F1 cars, I think, for the first time. Um, now, the reason I wrote this, right, was because on, on Tuesday, I was, I went from Birmingham up to Scotland with Mike Brewer because we were planning on the Wednesday to surprise a contributor on our show, Wheeler Dealers Dream Car. Uh, we were going to reveal their dream car to them. So we had been putting in months worth of work on building a beautiful 19, uh, 1973 Type 2 VW camper van. I mean, stunning car, beautiful. We put so much into this. It's probably the best car we've ever done on our show. So much detail, no compromise. And yet the Wednesday was going to be the day where we actually pulled the covers off and showed it to the person who we'd built the car for. Now, it was going to be a magical moment because the guy didn't know he was getting it. It was a surprise. It was a real heartfelt moment. And actually, when it happened, I mean, it was brilliant. You'll have to watch the show to to see exactly uh, the way he reacted. But he had no idea it was coming. And uh, I mean, look, he burst into tears. So it was brilliant. It was amazing. Uh, one of those beautiful moments that that show delivers. So uh, I was very honoured to be part of that. But the point that I wrote down, the note I wrote was just simply judgment day. I said it's judgment day. And the reason I wrote that was for two reasons. First of, first of all, it was judgment day because this piece of work that we had put months worth of effort in, and a lot of effort, I mean, a lot of detail, that was about to be judged for the very first time. It was about to be put out there into public, if you like. It's going to be shown to the person who was going to be driving it or, or owning it beyond the end of this show. It was Judgment Day. It was going to be judged for the very first time externally outside of our little team that built it. And at the same time, of course, the Formula One teams were in Barcelona doing the final touches to their cars, ready for the very same thing essentially happening on the following morning, where they would take the covers off their cars. They could no longer hide them and they had to put them out on a racetrack along with every other car where everybody could see them for the first time. Judgment Day. And look, that throws up a number of really big questions, because in the world of Formula One, this is a huge moment. And I can tell you from being on the inside of a Formula One team, you do put months and months in a lot of late nights, a lot of weekends and long, long days. And you leave no stone unturned, just like we did with our VW Kemper, to make sure you've got it right, to make sure you've given it the very best chance when it finally hits the track. But there's always through that entire process, a deadline coming up because you can't move it. That first test is coming on the day that it's coming. It's not gonna be pushed back just because you're not ready. So everything's heading towards that moment. And then when you finally get it to the racetrack and you do open up the garage doors on the very first morning and off it goes and there's a bank of photographers ready you know that half of those photographers are employed by the other teams in the pit lane they're snapping away they're getting shots of everything they can and all of that stuff that you have done your very best to keep secret in the days prior with screens and covers and even human walls protecting cameras from seeing sensitive areas of the car well all of a sudden it's out there we used to say it's the moment where you just have to pull your pants down and show everyone what you got <laughs> there's no more hiding you send your car out there and people immediately photograph it, film it, judge it, analyse it. People like me and many others start picking it apart on the internet, looking at the design, looking at what the team has done, why they might have done it, whether we think it's a good idea or a bad idea. Now, I actually haven't done that process this year and apologies for those who've been waiting for those kind of videos i haven't done it for two reasons partly because in 2022 and it's been proven to be the, exactly the case uh, in the last week almost all of the car reveals the launches that were unveiled to the public at the public and the press were of cars that barely resembled the cars that we actually saw hit the track this week in barcelona and I knew that would be the case because there were such huge changes coming this year that there was going to be even more secrecy than ever before in a pre-season test because the interpretation of the new rules could be wildly different from one end of the pit lane to the other. 
And in some cases, it really is. But we saw a different set of cars hit the racetrack to almost all of the cars that we saw presented to the world during the launches. So that's one reason I haven't done my own personal analysis of the cars. But the second one is, well, in fact, there's three. The second one is I haven't had time. That's a simple fact. But the third is I find it more and more difficult to go through that process because I know what it's like to be on the other end, because I know what it's like to be inside a Formula One garage looking out when it comes to pre-season and to have people judge your car in that way. Now, judging the aesthetics of the car, judging some of the basic design details that you can see from the outside, the shape of bodywork, the shape of wings. I mean, there's some value in that from a media perspective. Fans love to to see it and hear about it. I mean, I cannot wait to see them for the first time myself now that I am a fan. So there is value in people analysing some of the design philosophies. But I know from being on the inside that we used to almost have a bit of a chuckle at what people thought during pre-season testing in terms of the media and fans because they have absolutely no idea what's really going on inside the garage. The front wing that you see on the car in pre-season testing and even more so when it comes to launch spec photos is meaningless. It's nothing like the one that you'll see when it comes to the race. I mean, the test wing might at least show that the team are working towards a particular philosophy. But I've been to the very first Grand Prix of a season with a 13th different edition or the 13th different variation of front wing on the car. By the time we get to race one, 13 different designs of front wing. So to pick one and analyse it and suggest that the team has gone in a certain direction because of the front wing that you've suddenly seen for the very first time is, is almost laughable when you're inside one of those Formula One teams. It's like the media judging and analysing lap times, utterly pointless, and did make us laugh an awful lot because they have no idea what's going on inside, how much fuel you're running, what programme you're running, what you're trying to achieve out of that test day. The only thing that media and fans tend to judge is the lap time. And that's, some, that's the one thing in that pre-season test, particularly in the first week, that has almost no meaning to it. And so when I'm starting to think about this idea of judgment day and people judging from the outside, people no longer able to hide certain elements, but still desperately trying to throw photographers and the media off the scent of what a team is really trying to achieve with their test program. And that might be because they're running light on fuel or it might be because they are running a front wing that might not be the one that they plan to bring to the first race. It might be that they're running engines in a mode that's nowhere near the actual race mode that they'll end up competing in on the first Grand Prix weekend. So teams are putting out one kind of image or one kind of portrayal of what they're doing in some cases to literally throw other teams and other people off the scent of what they're actually doing. There's a story in my book about Adrian Newey having the whole team crowd round to hide details of our front wing at one particular race, forming human walls around the wing, putting covers on it the second that it came in from the racetrack, making a huge showy effort to protect that front wing from view from anybody. When in reality, that front wing was exactly the same front wing that we had had on the week before. And it was actually the rear wing on the car that weekend that was new and had some trick little details that we tried to hide. But Adrian Newey, using some kind of reverse psychology, tried to put the scent onto the front wing. So everybody focused on that and nobody took any notice of the rear wing that we then took to the race, took to the racetrack later in the weekend without anybody spotting it. Now, those kind of things, I think... And this is why this this is what this podcast does, right? We look for things in Formula One that could be reflected in the wider world, things that we might be able to take lessons from. Now, if you just think about that little process that I've talked about, that happens every year in preseason testing, where teams are portraying one image or giving off one particular version of themselves that may not be the real version, that may be the version they want other people to see but not the real version of things that are going on behind the scenes. 
I mean, surely that strikes a chord with many of us in the wider world, doesn't it, from a human perspective? How many people are doing just that? When it comes to things like social media, how many people are trying to portray a version of themselves that's not really real? They want people to see a different version of themselves and what's actually going on behind the scenes. Now, we might be doing it for different reasons. We might be doing it because we want to show off or because we want to portray a life that's happy and successful and somebody who's winning at life, somebody who's having a great time. Whereas in reality, behind the scenes, there might be all sorts of problems going on. There might be all sorts of reasons that people are suffering or struggling. But we don't want to show the world that because there's a perception that it makes us feel weak. There have been many cases of Formula One teams struggling at the very first test, knowing pretty early on, because, by the way, you do have a very good idea very early on in this process, whether you've got a good car or a bad car. Still plenty of scope for improvement, but you know on day one if you've got a world beater. Like Braun had in 2009, they knew immediately that car was quick. But equally, if you've got a car that's absolutely terrible, well, you get a very good inkling of that too on day one. Either because it's unreliable, it starts to break down everywhere, or because it doesn't react to changes, or because it's just simply slow. You have that feeling straight away. Now, if you're a team that is suddenly slow, and this happened more back in the day, but if you're a team that's got a car that hasn't met your expectations, there can be a tendency to run it very light on fuel to try and get a bit of a headline lap time in. Because you know the media are going to jump all over that lap time and analyse it to death, because they're going to suddenly start talking about you in the, the light of one of the favourites, for example, or a team that's performing above expectations because just look at the lap times they've done. Well, that can be beneficial to you in terms of pleasing or appeasing sponsors or even attracting new sponsors, preventing sponsors walking away, preventing difficult conversations with shareholders happening whilst you try and figure out the problems. There are any number of occasions when a Formula One team might want to portray a much better version of themselves than the reality version that might be going on behind the scenes where absolute panic might be setting in. A stark realisation that the car is nowhere near what they need it to be or expected it to be. But they don't want the world to see that at that point. And so they start to do things and show things that are not necessarily real. Running it light on fuel, turning the engine up to the max, doing short runs on soft, sticky tyres just to generate a lap time. There are lots of things like that that are happening in Formula One. There'll be things like that happening this very week in Formula One. And it happens in the wider world. And my point around this was when you're a fan, when you're part of the media and you're trying to desperately analyse the first few days of a pre-season test. That moment, as I said, that inside the teams, they might be looking out laughing at what the media are writing what the media are saying about them, because they might know it's so far from the truth. What I do when I'm watching pre-season testing and I'm reading or listening to the interviews with drivers and team principals at the end of a day, I'm looking for the little secret hidden nuggets in those interviews, in those conversations, in those reports that might start to give clues as to what's really going on. I'm looking at the body language of a driver that's being interviewed. I'm looking at some of the wording that he's chosen to use. Is he looking uncomfortable? Is he talking about very specific problems with the car? Or is he just being a little bit more generic, saying we've got more work to do? Do the team look happy? Are the people in the background smiling? Are they bouncing around the garage? Is it a jovial place to be? Those little signals can give off so much more information sometimes than the carefully prepared statements that drivers effectively read out when the cameras get rolled on. It's answers to the more difficult questions where they might stumble or pause or hesitate or look uncomfortable. Those clues can actually give us a lot more information than perhaps we, we might at first think. And those are the clues and the bits of information that the team might not be wanting you to see. And of course, that is exactly the same as what goes on in the wider world. 
There'll be people around you in your family, friend group, in your office who portray one image of their life, of their sense of well-being and happiness, but actually might be very different behind the scenes. Can you look for clues in that? Can you ask questions that might bring out other bits of information? And I've touched on this kind of thing in other versions of the podcast, in other episodes where people might display behaviours that don't necessarily link in with the vision or the portrayal that they are giving of themselves to the wider world. Is someone being a little bit short-tempered, a little bit more short-tempered than normal? Are they not performing to the same level that they normally do? Somebody you can absolutely rely on to deliver, maybe they're not. And they may not be showing too many signs other than their outright performance that something is not correct, something's not right in their world. But probably there's a reason why they may not be performing to that same level. There's probably a reason why they snapped back at you the other day, which seemed so out of character. There's probably a reason why they might be alienating friends right now because they keep falling out with people. Maybe there's a reason why they're suddenly not showing up to group meetings or to gatherings or to nights out, to social events that might be happening. Has one of your friends suddenly stopped appearing? Have you noticed they haven't really left the house very much recently? Whereas normally they're around to everywhere, they're out all the time. And just like the way I describe looking around the focal point of a Formula One team, i.e. the lap times in the car, start looking around the periphery, around the outside for other clues as to what might be happening. You can do the same with the people around you. You can try to spot other elements of people's behaviour that might give you clues that there could be something wrong in the background, something that clearly they don't want you to see, something they're not shouting about. Their social media is not going to be telling you if they're feeling a bit down or depressed. Their social media is probably going to be showing pictures and videos of them smiling, laughing, having a great time because people tend to do that. They tend to only want people to see this great version of themselves because they don't want to have to get into a difficult conversation about the problems they might be suffering with. And yet a difficult conversation about their problems is probably exactly what they need. Human communication and interaction is one of, if not the best form of therapy, one of the best forms of solution when it comes to working out personal problems. Very few people are able to fix, resolve, sort out difficult, complicated, personal problems on their own. Or it certainly becomes a lot harder to do that. And yet it's a perfectly normal human reaction to try and fend people off and try to cover up any problems you might be suffering with. So this idea of searching around the outskirts for little hidden clues and gems that might give you a bigger idea or a better idea of the picture that a certain person might have going on in the background can be a valuable exercise as a friend, as a family member, as a colleague. And then a little quiet word, you know, in private as to whether that person might want to talk about something difficult that could be going on about talking about some difference in behaviour that you might have noticed. So this idea of people portraying one image, but the reality being very different is something that is very profound for me this week, given what Formula One is going through. This idea of giving off a certain impression because that's the, the best thing that they feel that they can do for other reasons, like sponsors, like commercial reasons, like trying to appease the people that might be funding the project. And I have no doubt we've all got experience of things like that in the wider world, in business, in, in companies or in a person on a personal level. And look, the other thing that I picked up from preseason testing was this idea of judgment day, this idea of whenever we've done a piece of work. And I'm sure, again, we can all relate to this. The moment that we have to hand in the piece of homework, the moment that a project has to be delivered to your boss or to a client. For Mike Brewer and I, it was the moment we had to deliver this dream car 
to somebody who dreamt of owning one for most of their life. And we'd put our stamp on something, a long period of time and a huge amount of work had gone into it, and then we had to hand it over. And of course, people judge what you're doing. That's exactly what's happening when you're handing in your homework. Your teacher is going to judge the work you've done. That can be pretty scary at times. People can get anxious around that. They can get nervous around that. And that's a natural way to feel, of course. But, and this will link back to many of the other episodes, in fact, that I've done in different ways here, but it all really comes down to the work that you've done in the build-up to that moment. And this is the same for a Formula One team. You can only do what you can do before the moment comes where you have to pull your pants down and show the world what you've got. That work that goes in beforehand, it's called preparation. And the preparation that goes into anything is by far the most important part of anything you'll ever do. The bit on a Sunday afternoon where those Formula One cars launch off the start line and compete in this really public fashion in front of the world. That's a huge moment, of course, for a Formula One team. I can tell you that the hundreds or thousands of people working away behind the scenes are massively nervous for that moment. For Formula One fans, that's the only bit they see. So that is what they envisage as a Formula One event. They turn on their televisions for that moment. And yet, actually, that moment for a Formula One team, although it's huge, it's actually a relatively small part of the entire process. Because for weeks or months, there has been preparation. There's been time and energy and resource put into building up to that moment. And it's all of that preparation that actually is by far the biggest and therefore the most important part of anything to do with the entire Formula One operation. Preparation is key. When Mike Brewer and I handed over this VW van last week, we knew the reaction was going to be amazing, not only because this guy was getting his dream car, but because we had left no stone unturned when it came to making sure this camper van was the best it could be. There was zero compromise. We had gone to extraordinary lengths, and I mean working ridiculous hours to make sure this thing was as good as it could be. So our preparation was excellent. And that gave us the confidence to know that this reveal, that this handover, that this moment that you will see when you watch the show is brilliant because the impact that it has is spectacular. Formula One teams do the same. On that night before, the very first time the cars roll out in public and compete against each other, if your preparation has been the very best it could possibly be, if deep down you know that your preparation must have been better than the preparation your competitors will have gone to, the lengths that you've gone to surely are greater than the lengths that your competitors can have possibly gone to. There's a huge amount of confidence in that. There's a huge amount of confidence in knowing that your preparation was as good as it could be. You could have done no more. And if you could have done no more in terms of your preparation, Whatever the end result, whatever the consequences of how your car performs, of how your project is received by a client, of how your teacher judges and marks your homework. If you did the best you could have done at that time with what you had around you, with what resources you had available to you, you could hold your head up high and say, look, that was it. I gave it everything. There was nothing more that I could have done. And in that sense, to link back to last week's episode about measuring success, you have been as successful as you could have been. It doesn't matter about the mark. It doesn't matter about the end result. What matters is you went through a process and you maximise every single piece of it to the highest possible ability that you had. That's impressive. That's amazing. You can't do any more than that. You can't do literally any better than that. So preparation is king when it comes to judgment day on whatever it is you're delivering, whether that's a Formula One car to the world, whether it is a piece of work to your boss or your teacher, 
a project to a client at work, whatever it is, unveiling something, handing something over, delivering something that has had a huge amount of work and effort gone in. It's that work and effort that went in beforehand. And only you know whether that was as good as it could have been. And if it is, well, then the result almost doesn't matter. The result will look after itself. And the way that somebody judges something you've done is not necessarily representative of how good a job you've done. The way we judge the Haas Formula One car compared to the way we judge the Mercedes Formula One car. Two teams working to exactly the same set of regulations with exactly the same goals in mind in terms of trying to design and create the fastest Formula One car that they can create. Now, we don't expect the Haas Formula One car to be considerably quicker than the Mercedes one, but that's ultimately how it will be judged by the wider world. But if Haas have done the very best job that they could do with the resources that they had available to them at that time, if they've maximised everything at their disposal, well, then they have absolutely smashed it. They have done the very best they can do and nobody can do better than their best. There's the final lesson to take away for any of us this week, I guess. Nobody can do any more than their best. It really is as simple as that. Whatever you're doing this week, do your best. And if you can manage to look at yourself in the mirror, ask yourself that question and answer it by saying, I did my best. I absolutely did my best. I couldn't have done any more. Well, then you are absolutely nailing life. Go through the week trying your best to do that and you will smash it and come out the other side with a big grin on your face and hopefully with some results that make you very, very happy. I am going to leave it there this week and I will leave you with my favourite quote. And if you've been following this podcast for some time, you'll know this one because I've rolled it out a lot. It's a quote that I live my life by or at least try to. Nobody can actually do this all the time. But it's something that I would encourage you to reflect at the end of every day on this particular quote. And the quote simply says, do the right things, do the things right. I have it everywhere in my life. It's written down in places all over the house. It's my screensaver on my laptop. It's on my phone. Do the right things. Do the things right. And if you can get to the end of each day over the next week and ask yourselves, did I do that? Did I do the right things today? And did I do those things as well as I could have done them? If you can answer yes to those questions, well, you're not going very far wrong. Have a great week, folks. Do the right things. Do the things right. Tell out.